0: It's good to be here. Uh, the staff does, does say hi. We're so um, interested and care about what God is doing here, and so grateful to hear of the good things that God is doing in the hearts and lives of the people here at the King's Church. So, as you saw, I have three kids: Lily is 15, Nathan is 13, and Selah is 12. And it really is a fun season of life. They're they're just finding out who they are and they're finding out what God has called them to do and really who they're calling to be. And, and one of my favorite hobbies right now actually is going and watching them do the things that they love. And so uh, Nathan is playing sports, uh, Selah's into theater and volleyball, and Lily loves baking and volleyball as well. And so I love seeing them become the people that God has created them to be. But one thing that I don't love <laughs> about them uh, is when they choose to question me on things that they really have no knowledge or in, really ability to question me in. So, for instance, my son Nathan, uh, we were driving the other day, and he, he's like, Dad, in the back seat, he's like, Dad, you really need to be changing lanes right now. <laughs> and I said, Nathan, I'm like, I got this, but he's like, no, Dad, you're going to miss the exit. And I said, Nathan... There's literally a car right next to us, and if I change lanes, I'm going to hit that car, and I don't really want to do that right now, so just be quiet. And so uh, the other day, Selah was having a rough night, and she says, Dad, I really don't think I should have to do math or history homework. And I said, really? Why is that? She's like, because in real life when I'm adult, I'm really not going to need these things. (laughs) And I'm like, how do you know what you're going to need when you're an adult? You're 12 right now, and your teacher's told you to do it. We're asking you to do it. You need to do it. And I guess I'll be fair and tell you a little bit about Lily. So uh, (laughs) Lily was uh, really gracious. She she invited actually Selah and her friend Sarah to to a practice for volleyball. They were going to try out for their junior high team. And her and her friend took them out to the park, taught them how to serve. And one of the girls just was not having a good go at serving. And so I went over there, and I'm like, look, actually, if you try and think of like a bow and arrow pulling it back like that, that's kind of the tension that you want to get when you're serving in volleyball. And Lily's like, dad, I got this. <laughs> He's like, and I'm like, actually, Lily, just remember, I, I was a volleyball coach for three years. Uh, I did play college athletes, even though athletics, even though it was a long time ago. I think I'm okay. I can, I can share a little bit of wisdom, right? And, and I get it. This is part of, uh, excuse me, this is part of them growing up, right? This is part of us becoming adults. This is part of us figuring out who we are, And to be honest, my kids are very talented. They're very very smart. There's things that I actually have to ask them how to do. And so I'm not saying they're not, not smart. But what does happen is sometimes their hearts can become prideful. Sometimes they can ask questions or say comments in a way that seems that they think they know what's best, and it reveals some wrong motives and some wrong values and a wrong heart posture in what they're talking about. And that's really what's happening in the passage of Mark that we're going to be going through today. We have these three groups of people. There's the Pharisees, there's the Herodians, and there's the Sadducees. And all of them come to Jesus with questions. And on the surface, you might be thinking those are fair questions. But it's likely that these questions will represent some common areas that you might have questions for God, that you might have doubts, you might have fears, you might have struggles or difficulties with too. So I know that they're going to be relevant. But we'll also see that the questions they bring to Jesus are not really genuine questions at all. They're not really seeking the answers to these questions. They're the right subject, but they're the wrong question because they come to God trying to justify their wrong values, their wrong motives, and they reveal a prideful heart. And we don't want to follow their example. We can learn from their mistakes. And we can learn how to rightly bring our concerns and questions and doubts and difficulties to God. And I think we'll learn some important truths along the way too. And so this morning, our main point for today is, good questions before God are asked with pure motives, right values, and a humble heart. So good questions before God are asked with a pure motives, right values, and a humble heart. For some of us, in the guise of seeking, or in in being intellectual, we play the dangerous game of trying to trap and outsmart God with our questions, rather than truly seek Him and the truth that He has to offer. We would rather have God confirm our wrong motives, our impure values, than let Him change them to conform us to Him. So we come to God with the wrong posture, and when we do that, we will almost always ask the wrong question. But you and I don't have all the answers in life, do we? We don't know everything. We're not like Zayla and Nathan and Lily, right? So we need to learn how to ask the right questions as we come before God. So how do we come rightly to God with our questions? That's what we want to talk about today. But before we do that, I want you to think through those three categories I just mentioned. Pure motives, right values, and a humble heart. What are pure motives? Think about it. What should we be motivated by when we're asking questions to God? And I just came up with a few things. First, we should be seeking the truth, right? If we're going to ask a question, we should genuinely be seeking an answer. We should be motivated by the fear of the Lord, to know him rightly, to respect him, to have him in the place of authority of our lives that he deserves. We should be motivated by pleasing and bringing honor and glory to him. We should be motivated by holiness and obedience. And we should be motivated by humility, right? A true question is one where we genuinely understand that we're not a person that knows everything and we don't have all the answers. So those are some of the things that we can be motivated by when we're asking right questions. So what about the right values? What should matter in the questions that we ask? Well, eternal things, things of God, things that are going to last longer than just where we are right here and right now. Love. Love should be one of the values that we have. Truth should be one of the values that we have. Are we seeking and wanting and desiring to know the truth? The fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5 tells us those are joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And finally, holiness and obedience. We should value that when we're asking questions to God. And finally, what's a humble heart? What posture should be evident in the questions that we ask? Well, first, we're going to see honesty as a really big thing. So if you have a genuine question before the Lord, whatever it is, bring it to him. But be honest with him. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the people around you. Be grateful. Be grateful to God for who he is and what he's done. Be respectful of God and his authority and what he knows and what you don't, right? Free of arrogance. And finally, this this posture of being the creation to the creator. That we come to the one who created this world and we're the creation trying to figure out how to make sense of it. And so we're going to see that the people in this passage don't have any of these things going for them. None of these things are fueling their questions, and Jesus isn't afraid to point that out to them and the people around. And before we dive into this passage, I just want to prime the pump a little bit and ask you a question. How might you be trying to play games with God in your life? What questions are you asking that reveal a wrong motive or an impure value or a hard and prideful heart? Where are you practicing theological jujitsu or intellectual justification to get out of obedience to God? And remember, it's not that we can't ask questions to God or we can't ask questions about God. But when we do, we have to have pure motives, we have to have right values, and we have to have a humble heart. Because when we do, that's when the Lord will meet us. That's when the Lord will answer us. That's when he will bring loving correction rather than a strong rebuke. Because if we don't, we risk coming before a God wrongly, and we will experience that rebuke, rather than coming to a gentle father who wants to love and nourish and build us up. And we're going to see our group of friends try to play two games with God. And the first game they try to play is about paying taxes with Caesar. And on one hand, this passage that Charlene read for us is pretty straightforward. I think you probably get the gist of what's going on. But there are some things bubbling under the surface that can help us understand it a little bit better. And so it starts out, if you look uh, in verse 13, it says that they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in their talk. So who are we talking about here? Who's the they? Um, the, the they is likely the chief priests and the teachers of the law. So you probably went through this passage within the past couple of weeks, Mark 11, uh, verse 28, and we actually see that the chief priests. We see that the teachers of the law come together with one goal in mind to trap Jesus. They want to trick him. And they're thinking of all these schemes. And here they come up with a plan to send both the Pharisees and the Herodians to jointly ask him these questions about about taxes to Caesar. And so the Pharisees is the next group of people that we see. I'm sure you've covered them, who they are in in this series. They're, They're mentioned a lot in the book of Mark. But just remember, they're legalistic, they're trusting in the law for salvation. And they're, they're mostly about being right. They're mostly about having God uh, agree with their behavior and confirm their behavior rather than be changed by God and what he actually believes and thinks. And then we have the Herodians. They're friends of Herod. They are supporters that, of Rome and their rule over the Jewish people. They love the leadership and the rule of Romans. Here's the interesting thing. The Pharisees and the Herodians didn't like each other. They weren't friends. They weren't buddies. They didn't get along. They actually disagreed in most key areas regarding faith. But one thing they have in common is their dislike of Jesus. And so the teachers of the law gather them together, and they, they, they say, how can we defeat Jesus? Because they hated him, and they hated his teachings. And they come to team up on Jesus so that no matter how Jesus answers this particular question, someone can and will rebuke, them, rebuke him. They'll be able to counter his argument, they'll destroy his reputation, and hopefully the people will leave following him. And so what's up with this question that they asked? I'm glad you asked. Um, so first, you need to pick up on their sarcasm in verse 14 of this compliment that they bring. It says, they came to Jesus and said, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And so you hear these words, and they appear pious, don't they? They appear like they agree with who Jesus says he is. But everything they actually say about Jesus is true. The only problem is they don't believe it. They don't actually think these things are true. They're coming, remember, to trap him. And Jesus is popular at this point. And they're taking some of their followers away. And they come to this place where this huge crowd of people are with Jesus. And what's their goal? Their goal is to remove the people's affection for Jesus and get it back on them. They want to change the people's hearts, but they don't want to come out right and reject him because they know that won't go well with the people. So they try to be clever. They try to outsmart Jesus. This way they can look good in front of the crowds, they can give these flattering words, they can even come up with a smart sounding question. But the real hope in their heart is to make Jesus lose face on his own because they think they have him trapped. In a way that he cannot answer this question without upsetting a lot of people. So they come around with what they think is the perfect question about taxes, right? Who doesn't love talking about taxes in here, right? So they ask Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Seems like a fair question, right? Well, let's look at it through the lens of motives, values, and hearts. What's their motive? Well, Jesus says they're hypocrites. Jesus sees their heart. He knows that they don't desire to know the truth. He knows that they don't really care what Jesus thinks about their question. He's, they're coming fully armed with a question that they're like, we gotcha. So we know their motive isn't pure. What about their right values? Do they have the right value? No, because they're missing the fruit of the spirit. They're not self-controlled. They're not patient. They're not humble. They're not focused on eternal things. They don't really care about obedience. They don't really care what Jesus says here. All they know is Jesus' answer is going to make someone angry, and that makes them happy. So do they have a humble heart? No, definitely not. They're not being honest before the Lord. They're not respectful of Jesus' teachings or who he is. They're coming with arrogance. And so they're clearly trying to play a game with Jesus here. And they come to him with the wrong question regarding money. And even though it's the wrong question, Jesus does, in his grace, take time to answer them. And so they just aren't going to like what he says. So look back at verse 15, where it says, But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So the tax that they're referring to here, the coin that they're referring to here, is a specific coin that was created in AD 6. And it was made to pay a tax created especially for the Jewish people. Because the Romans were ruling, they said, hey, Jews, here's a tax you have to pay us. It was a yearly tax that they had to pay, and it was equivalent to about $30 in cost. And it had to be paid with this specific coin. It couldn't be paid with any other coin that was made. And it had the face of Caesar, and on the inscription, it described Caesar as the divine son of God. So here's the catch. Jews saw this coin and its description as horrible. They didn't want to carry it around. They didn't want to affirm or acknowledge Caesar as the divine son of God because that would represent desecration of who God is. It would be blasphemy, and it would be in approval of the the domination of Rome over the Jewish people. So if Jesus answers yes, pay the tax, Jews and the Pharisees will hate him. They're going to come after him and point all these things out. But if he says no don't pay the tax. The Herodians are there who support the tax and support Rome, and they'll report back to Roman leaders that Jesus is treasonous. And then Rome will now be on Jesus' head too. Do you see the situation that they think they have Jesus in? They think they have him right where they want him, trapped, cornered, and about to make him look stupid and about to anger a lot of people. But Jesus, being God and all, is about 100 steps ahead of him, and any game that they try to play and we try to play with him won't work. And let me just say, be careful not to come to Jesus this way. Looking for ways that his teaching doesn't apply to you, or where you think you're so clever to get out of what his word says, or trying to change the subject because you don't like it, or like these, these Pharisees and the Herodians acting religious with no actual desire for heart change. You cannot play games with God and win. And if we can learn anything from these questions today, that's it. The crowd may have bought their act, but Jesus didn't. So he tells them to bring the denarius to him and asked, whose likeness and inscription is on it? And I just want to say this is a deeper question than it seems. The word likeness there, it's the same word used in Genesis one twenty-six, when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is really important, and we'll talk about this later. But Jesus is taking this question to a whole deeper meaning and level than they ever wanted to go. And they answer, Caesar. It's Caesar's image and likeness. So Jesus tells them, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, render to God what's God's. And it kind of just ends here, right? This story, we don't know what people did. We know that they marveled. We know that they were impressed or in awe. But we see that Jesus doesn't fall into their trap. And we see that the Pharisees and the Herodians don't win the game they're trying to play. No one's angry here. No riot starts. But if we look a little bit deeper and think a little bit deeper, we can see that the question they should have asked regarding money isn't the question that they asked. Their question was whether or not Jews should be paying their hard-earned money to Caesar. But Jesus wants them to be asking, what do I have that actually belongs to God? And what do I have that actually belongs to Caesar? Look at his answer again in verse 17. He says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It seems kind of ambiguous. seems kind of incomplete. And because of that, it should induce us as readers and hearers of his word to ask, wait, what is stamped with the image of God? The answer is you. The answer is me. The answer is the Herodian, the Pharisee. Caesar himself. The answer is all people. This passage isn't about taxes at all. Jesus takes a question about a coin and makes it about ownership and stewardship. And it says everyone there marveled at what Jesus did because he took their question, he springs their trap, he catches them in their own snare and he turns it back on them. He says, actually, I'm going to trap you. You want to talk about giving money and taxes? That's what I'm going to have you really think about. And they marveled And I argue we should too, because this passage is just as much about you and me as it is about them. God has engraved his image on us, on our hearts. And our rightful response is to give him what belongs to him. That's what that word render means, it means give it over. And what belongs to him? Everything, every single thing in this world. Jesus is taking their game, their wrong question, and makes it clear that the really important question is what has supremacy in our life? Will we render to God what is God's? This is more than what you're doing with your money. It's about every area of your life. Will you continue to play games with God and hold back from him the things that belong to him? Whose image is stamped on our heart? Which kingdom are we living for? Which kingdom am I living for? Are you living for? What do you and I have that belongs to God? And what do we have that belongs to Caesar? The Bible says actually none of it belongs to Caesar. In 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13, it says Therefore David blessed the Lord in, his presen- in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father. Forever and ever, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O God, and praise your glorious name. David got it. David understood that God owns it all. Every blessing, everything belongs to God in both heaven and on earth. Rulers, authorities, time, power, money, you and me. The Pharisee, the Herodian, Caesar himself. And he hands it over to us in his wisdom, in his honor, in his name, in his, in his divine thinking. And he says, Steve steward it well. He says, you steward it well. I'm giving it to you. Even Caesar only had what God gave him. He just didn't steward it for God's glory and for God's purposes. But none of it was his and none of it is ours. So what do we render to Caesar? Nothing. What do we render to God? Everything. So you might be thinking, wait, Does this mean we don't have to pay taxes anymore? Because that would be awesome. No, we know that Romans 13, 1 through 7 very clearly tells us to pay our taxes. But the point is, whatever we do, we do it as it's unto God, because it's his. We don't do it as it's unto Caesar or our government or whoever's leading or ruling us. God gave it to us. And he says, trust me as I set things up that I know what's right. Because he owns it all. And he owns it all with perfect wisdom And we better give to God what he is due. And somehow, paying taxes can give God glory. So we do it. So the right question isn't, do we give our hard-earned money to Caesar? The right question is, what are you holding back from rendering to God? Is it your money? Is it your time? Is it relationships? Is it gifts and skills that God has given you? Is it a sin that you've justified? Like the Pharisees and the Herodians here. See, Jesus is teaching that Christians can't compartmentalize their life. As if we can say, here's Caesar's portion, here's my portion, and here's God's portion. Almost like, hey, God, you can have Sundays. Well, not all of Sundays because football season is in here, so I get the second half of Sundays. Caesar gets my work hours, and God, whatever's left, I guess I'll give to you. Actually, I'll just do what I want to do with that too. Right? We compartmentalize this thing. We actually think that there's these different categories of who owns what we have. These religious teachers are trying to come up with a question so they can walk away and ignore the teachings of Jesus. And I would argue that sometimes we do the same thing. They didn't win, and neither can we. We can't play this game. We can't trap Jesus. It's foolishness. So that's the first game they played with Jesus. Now let's look at the second game which is about marriage and the resurrection. So they come to him. I'm not going to read it all for time's sake. They come to him, and they're like, hey, here's the deal, Jesus. There's this law in the Old Testament where Moses says that if a man is married to a woman and he does not produce offspring, that next older brother has to come in and marry her and then hopefully try to bring an offspring in for her, his older brother. And they make up this story where there's a family with seven people. And he says, okay, all seven of them don't produce offspring. And then the wife dies. And then when the wife dies, they want to know who is she going to be married to in the resurrection, in heaven. Such a morbid story. And it's a story they totally made up. This is not a real example. Uh, This is a fictional family that they've used to try and trap other religious leaders and teachers And it's probably been successful because people couldn't come up with a good answer. Um, They've most likely used that and had success. So they're like, hey, we're going to come and get Jesus too. Because remember, they do not believe that the resurrection is real. That's what we learned in verse 18. And so that's kind of the story. And I want to read to you what Jesus' response is to them starting in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Talk about a backfire, right? They definitely picture that going differently in their mind when they went to Jesus. But once again, we see Jesus as being accused, opposed, and trapped. And this time, it's by the Sadducees. So who are the Sadducees? We know in verse 18 that they don't believe in the resurrection. They also don't believe in angels or anything spiritual. And they only acknowledge the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, as the actual word of God. And since there was no mention of any kind of resurrection in their opinion in that book, then the resurrection must not be true. They're also known for almost having the entirety, um, if not most of it, the entirety of the Pentateuch memorized. It's the first five books of the Bible they had memorized. It's amazing. And even though they knew Scripture, they didn't really know it. And they came to Jesus with the same prideful and hard heart that the Pharisees and Herodians came when they asked their wrong question. So, in the same way, let's think about Using that same ideas of motive, value, and heart, what's wrong with their question? What's their motive? Is it pure? No, they're not motivated by being right. They're motivated by prideful arrogance. They think they actually know better than Jesus. They're more concerned with proving Jesus wrong than actually finding the truth about the resurrection. What do they value? Well, they don't value eternal things. They don't even believe it exists. So they also they show no value in love or the things of the Lord or even the character of God. And are they coming with a hard and prideful heart? Again, we can say yes to this group as well. There's no honesty in their question. There's no genuine searching for the answer. So remember, they're trying to trap Jesus just like the last group did. They think they have him in an impossible situation to get out of. And using the book of Moses, which is like the Pentateuch, they're saying, look, There's this law, it's called the Leverite marriage. It really exists that requires the younger brother to marry his dead brother's wife and try to produce offspring. And in their humanistic thinking, there is no way to reconcile this law and the resurrection. And because of that, the resurrection can't be true. This wife can't possibly be married to seven people in heaven. So either Moses' law is wrong or the resurrection is impossible. It's another trap but it's another failure. And in this instance, Jesus actually helps us and he tells us what's wrong with their question. And we see that they shouldn't be asking about marriage and the resurrection. The right question they should have been asking is, do we actually know the scriptures and the power of God or not? That's what Jesus wants to point out. And even though they have the Pentateuch memorized, he says, look, you do not even know the scriptures And there's a difference between knowing what the Bible says and what it means. There's a difference between understanding the grammar and the structure and the human explanation and knowing the inspired spiritual truth within it from God himself. And they loved arguing about this passage. I'm in a Bible reading plan, and we just went through the book of Acts. And in Acts 23, uh, Paul is brought to the council, and people are just tired of Paul, same way people were tired of Jesus, and they just want him out. They actually want him dead. And he comes before this council who's going to determine his fate. And he looks at the council and he sees that it's part Pharisee and it's part Sadducee, right? And remember, this is the group we're dealing with, the Sadducees. And what he does is he actually brings up the resurrection. And as soon as he brings up the resurrections, the gloves come out. It's no longer about Paul. It's about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Bible tells us that a great dissension breaks out between the two groups. And they start arguing and fighting each other as the council trying to determine what to do with Paul. And it says that that people in the the court actually decided they had to take Paul out of there because they were afraid he was going to be ripped to pieces. (laughs) And they remove him, and the council and the whole trial gets sidetracked and delayed all because of the issue of the resurrection. This topic mattered deeply to the Sadducees, and they were good at defending it. And we can see that they didn't really care about Jesus' answer because Paul's story is after this. They didn't correct their ways. They didn't take Jesus' answer and let it change them. But Jesus sees their game. He takes it to another place. He takes their wrong question and turns it to what really matters. And he tells them two different times in this passage, you are wrong. And the second time he tells them, you are quite wrong. In fact, Jesus says they don't even understand the part of scripture that they have memorized, yet alone the rest of it that they reject as truth. They don't understand marriage. They don't understand that it's going to be different than it is here on earth. They don't understand death, that it's not the end, that it's going to usher in eternity. And they definitely don't understand heaven because they don't even think it exists. They don't see the beautiful picture of the glory and joy that we're going to have being in God's presence for the rest of eternity. These are all things Jesus said they would have known in the Pentateuch if they were searching for the truth. See, Scripture does not hold the weight in their life that it should. It doesn't hold the weight in in their life that they think it does. And so second, he says, not only do you not know the Scriptures, you don't know the power of God. They miss the miracles found in the first five books of the Pentateuch. I think if I asked you, Hey, tell me some of the miracles that demonstrate the power of God in the first five books of the Bible. We'd make a pretty extensive list, wouldn't we? Come with with the ten plagues in Exodus, right? That he could create the world out of the words of his mouth in Genesis 1. That he can protect the Israelites from Pharaoh's army. That again and again, he can perform these miracles and wonders out of his own power. And it's like, couldn't he also raise people from the dead if he could do these things? That's what Jesus is saying they're missing. They've read all these stories, and they don't think God can do something as simple to him as raising someone from the dead. But they, and we, forget God's power. Although we read about it, although we've explained it, although we've experienced it, we can always forget it. So we question things that are beyond our thinking, question things that are beyond our own comprehension, as if God couldn't possibly do something that we can't. Yet because of their lack of knowledge of the scriptures and the power of God, the Sadducees don't even believe any of it. They tried to play a game with God and put it in, and, put, and he got, they got put in their place. They came asking about heaven and marriage and left questioned if they even knew the scriptures or the power of God. And it's interesting. Did you see the, the passage that he went to? He went to the passage in the burning bit, bush that says they're missing the whole thing. He says, regarding the resurrection, didn't God say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? And you're like, you're probably thinking like I was. What does that have to do with the resurrection? What does he say there? He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. All three of those people are dead. They died hundreds of years ago when Moses came when God came to Moses at the burning bush. And he says, Yet, yeah, it's not that I was, it's not that I will be, he says, I am. They've been saved, they've been resurrected because of their faith. He says, You don't even know how to read the scriptures that you have memorized. They tried to play this game, they didn't win. We can't play this game, we can't win. So, what do we do with this? We all need to come to Jesus for answers. We all have questions, we all have doubts, we all have concerns, and Jesus wants you to. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are hurting, all of you who are broken, heavy-hearted, but we have to ask questions with the right motive, with pure values, with a humble heart. We can no longer play these games with God. We see what happens. We can't win. So maybe the questions you're asking, thinking, reveal that you don't acknowledge and surrender the ownership of your life to God. I want to challenge you. Give everything you have to the powerful creator God who loves you, who's the God of the living, who wants you to be a part of the work that he's accomplishing here and now at the King's Church. Maybe the questions you have reveal that you don't know the scriptures. You either don't read them or you don't study them or you're trusting in the wisdom of man instead of him. You don't give it authority in your life. I want to challenge you to believe in these words, to trust in the God who inspired them, who gave them just for us so that we can find salvation and what we need for life. Or maybe you don't know the power of God. Maybe you've prayed and been disappointed. Maybe you've asked God for something and it didn't happen. Or maybe you think the only thing that God can do are the things that you can understand and the things that you can make sense of. But the God of the Bible is so much bigger than that that we can't even understand the depth and the breadth and the width of his love, yet alone his actions. Or maybe the thing that's wrong with your questions is you come to him with a prideful and hard heart. Maybe you're so hurt, you're so broken, that you're like, prove it to me, God, rather than seeking him with a humble and soft heart, saying, I come to you, Lord, broken and unsure, not knowing the way to go, but will you lead me? So I encourage you, seek the Lord with pure motives, with right values, and a humble heart, and embrace his answer. I was thinking of the Bereans in Acts 17, and the Bible says of them, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed. They questioned, but they sought the truth. They doubted, but they went to the scriptures. They had pure motives, right values, and a humble heart. And because of that, they believed and experienced great fruit in their life. And when you and I seek God this way, we too will find him, the Bible tells us. And he will grant salvation. He will grant eternal life. He will give us wisdom and joy and peace and direction. We can't outsmart God, but we can submit to him. And when we do that, we will be changed by the truth. And the Bible tells us that the truth will set us free. And I would argue that is really what we need in our lives, to be set free and to experience the freedom that only God can bring. So some of you need to bring the questions you have to God. But do it in this posture. Not the posture of the Pharisees or the Herodians or the Sadducees. Ask him the question and let him lead in, lean into you. Let his word and answer marvel you. And let him help you grow in his likeness and his image. He is an approachable God. More approachable than you ever thought or imagined. But we have to check our wrong motives and values and pride at the door and come humbly to him and come often to him so that he can bring his loving correction and fatherly wisdom. So where's your greatest friction in what we've talked about this morning? Where, is, where are you being convicted in this teaching? I would argue that's where the Holy Spirit is trying to do his greatest work in your life today. Do you need to render to God what is God's? and experience the most joy and fullness of life imaginable because he wants us to enjoy his good gifts or do you need to prioritize knowing and trusting in his word and his power over your own thinking and the ways of man or do you need to bring another question to him and say lord i'm seeking you i would encourage you to do that because he's a good ruler he's a loving master He cares for you. He loves you. He wants to show you his mercy and his grace. He wants to give you peace and joy. He wants you to come with him without the games. He wants you to seek so that you can find the truth in him and you can walk in this life as you were created to walk. Let me pray. God, I'm grateful for this passage of scripture. God, two stories that we can easily just make sense of and move past. I know I've done that in my life. And yet, God, as we dive into what's going on under the surface here, God, it's, it's to come back, it's to be a mirror for us so that we can decide if we're asking the same kind of questions or not. So, God, help us humbly come to you with the, the questions and the seeking that we have. God, this life doesn't always make sense. And, God, we're people trying to grope our way around and feel our way for the answers. And God, sometimes we see you as the enemy in answering these questions and yet you're the one that holds the key. You're the one that holds the truth. And so God, humble our hearts. Give us pure motives, the right values so that we can seek you and we can find you. We can experience your joy and your purpose for all that you have in store for us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.